Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, the podcast for, well, the C-SPAN 2 crowd <laughs> and those who like long, rambling side conversations with yes. random abstracts, the, the pattern recognition podcast. We're thinking in thoughts. They're just not always connected or interrelated. Right. If, if ever there was a podcast where the, there's no set direction, it's just two people thinking out loud. It's 100% this podcast. That's well, why we read books. Because without the book, we have no anchor. <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, though, the book often f- feeds us enough fodder to keep us going in whatever direction. It really does. It's, it's like those people that try and sail around the world in a sailboat. It's like we have a direction, we have a goal, but then the sail breaks and we're just kind of out there for 378 days hoping someone rescues us. Mm. I heard uh, John Kleinig a few weeks ago. Uh, he was talking about an experience he had. Actually, I think this was in the YouTube video online where he's talking about yeah. Zasa. And so he goes to Dr. Zasa and he's like, you know, I'm having the, I have this problem. He's like, oh, you have a problem? Yeah, no, I have this problem. <laughs> um, like during the sermons in chapel, I like, they'll say something and I'll, I'll get distracted and I'll be thinking about that. And I'm not paying attention to what they're saying. Right. I do that during the prayers of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get hung up on like one statement. I get distracted by the prayers of the church. And you realize you said three petitions without even realizing it. Right. You're just <laughs> rattling them off and you're still thinking about the first petition. But it's like, is this really a problem? Are you meditating on God's word? It's not actually a problem. The tangent isn't right. the problem. You right. Know, you're you're in, indicting yourself for meditating on God's word. I was going to say, nothing is a greater witness to the work of the Holy Spirit than the fact that I check out in the middle of the divine service and yet it's still going. <laughs> it, well, you're not totally checked out. That's the point. I mean, you, you're you're checked in almost on whatever mm-hmm. words, you know, crossed. Right, at a very, very deep level. Yeah, exactly. You meditate yeah. on those words. Right. And go through the motions <laughs> on the rest. Oh, well, there's some insight into pastoral practice. There we go. Kabuki Theater 101. <laughs> why are all the instructions written on the page? That's why. That's right. Exactly. Easily distracted. Why do you have the page open? Don't you know it by heart? Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> squirrel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're going to dive back into Dr. Luther's lectures on Galatians. This is translated, if you didn't know, from the previous four or five episodes that we've done already. This is translated by Geraldo Camacho, forward by Michael Horton. Martin Luther's commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians, 1535, published by 1517. Publishing, Press. yeah. 1517 Publishing? There okay. we go. Yep. Yeah, 1517 Publishing, as it is stamped on the back. Mm-hmm. And what does it say on the back? Martin Luther's most comprehensive work on justification by faith. His commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians is translated and edited from the Latin into a lively style, paralleling his spoken lectures, combined with the passion and faith expressed in these lectures. The biblical foundation for the crucial doctrine of justification is underscored and expressed to a new audience. The commentary is also a historical document, a recording of a professor in a classroom in 1531 from July to December of that year, which expresses the reformer's commitment to the good news of Jesus' death in the sinner's place, challenging the reader, hearer, to compare St. Paul's theology with what he, she hears in the church today. Yeah, so this is, we've talked about way back at the beginning, I mean, this is a transcription of mm-hmm. of Luther's, Dr. Luther's magnificent lectures, yeah. Bible class. <laughs> right. I think it was Casper Cruciger and Justice Jonas. Okay, you can go back and listen and find out. I think those were the two guys who uh, 
really dialed it in because yeah they developed their own shorthand that then the other students adopted and that's how they kept up with with dr luther who's going a mile a minute i imagine yeah absolutely you want to talk about a guy who thought out loud in his lecture hall mm -hmm. or in the pulpit again you look into the well of history and ask why do i love luther you see your own reflection <laughs> yeah oh especially in the uh, uh what is it the church apostles right the recording of, of yes those. yes and it's like whoa squirrel squirrel to squirrel there's no <laughs> right that's true yeah three pages on uh, the sophists and then mm -hmm. pig farmers and then yeah oh yeah getting back to the text yeah right yeah he does that. i think yeah if you're if you're more of a systematic thinker you're probably more given to calvin and reformed theology which likes a lot of nice right angles hmm. and in order versus if you're a reformation lutheran then yeah you're probably a pattern guy you're you're probably a little bit more uh off the leash as as luther himself talks about with uh you know when you get the gospel you're like a dog that's been let off the leash yeah which uh we would today diagnose as somewhere on the spectrum <laughs> somewhere on the spectrum <laughs> what's wrong with with the lutheran theology well it's kind of on the spectrum <laughs> it just just doesn't quite fit the mold right mm. yeah no uh, if, if you get down with some real lutheran reformation lutherans it really is the island of misfit toys mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you look around and go oh my goodness it's like the uh the cantina scene in star wars yeah or when uh in toy story when they discover what uh uh what was the the garbage truck he ends up being a garbage truck driver but uh when he's young in toy story he's next door uh I right, right right yeah, yeah, what, yeah, yeah what he's done to all the toys <laughs> that's right yes <laughs> there's the barbie doll that's attached to the fishing rod <laughs> yes they all come out from underneath the bed <laughs> it's like this horror show it's phenomenal so yeah we're the lutherans we're the ones who are the the tortured toys that live under the bed <laughs> oh, but we're, so we're actually nice once you get pretty, to know us pretty thoughts well you are i guess i don't know <laughs> so we're going to dive back in we we stopped in the middle of luther's first lecture where he introduces really the thesis of paul's letter to the galatians and therefore his lectures yeah it becomes the syllabus for the lecture right the main argument as he says of the epistle so we're going to dive back in following what he talks about he sets up the distinction between active and passive righteousness which is passive righteousness or the righteousness of faith or christian righteousness comes through excuse me the declaration of the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name. Mm -hmm. We receive it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. In contrast to all the other kinds of righteousness that are active in this world. You're right. Political, civil, political, civil righteousness, the righteousness of parents and tutors, mm -hmm. political righteousness, the social, human traditions. Right. We'd say outward obedience, right? Outward obedience. The kingdom on the left, which is ruled by God's word of law, and the kingdom on the right, which is ruled by God's word of the gospel. Incidentally, Luther includes in act of righteousness, um, the keeping of the commandments. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think what we'll do to begin then is we'll launch right into the paragraph we stopped with or ended with in the last episode for continuity's sake. So you know where we're at and what we're talking about. So this is in the beginning. Um, page 26 of, of the intro. Page 26, St. Paul's argument in the epistle to the Galatians. The righteousness, this righteousness, passive righteousness, the righteousness of faith or Christian righteousness, Luther writes, this righteousness is a hidden mystery. The world is not aware of it. What's more, Christians themselves don't understand it fully, and they can hardly take hold of it in their temptations. Therefore, it is necessary 
to teach it and practice it continually without any let-up. And whoever can't understand it, or is unable to hold on to this righteousness, will be hounded by the constant fears of his conscience and will certainly be defeated. There is no other comfort as firm and sure for the conscience as is offered by this passive righteousness. What does Luther mean by conscience? We didn't talk about that in the last show. Right, right. So in the modern context, post-enlightenment conscience is Jiminy Cricket. Let your conscience be your guide. The idea of having what? Uh, an, you know, each Angel of on one shoulder, devil on the other, right? It's very much about making the right choice or the good choice versus the bad or the wrong choice. You could even say, like, is today the sinner going to rule or is it going to be the saint, right? Right. And the point, though, of modern understandings of conscience is it gives me the individual personal agency. Mm. It's all about the self. And it is coming from inside of me and how I act that out in the world versus my decisions. Luther, being pre-modern, doesn't mean that at all. What he means is our sense of standing in relation to God and each other. How we hear God's word. How we, not only how we hear God's word, but how that word then lays out our relation to God and yeah, each other. So it's it is relational and it takes place outside of us. It is the antithesis of the modern understanding of conscience. So if you have a good conscience, then we would say it's well-informed that you've heard God's word and right. you've heard the word of forgiveness, namely, right? Right. It, it's like, doc, like Dr. Luther talks about in the Schmall called articles under the gospel. It is the comfort and the consolation mm. of a terrified conscience. A conscience that's been informed only by, by our sin and by the temptations of this world and the, and the, all the lies the devil tells, right? Right. That would be a terrified conscience. Mm -hmm. A, a conscience that is confident and comforted is a conscience that is grounded in God's word of forgiveness and the reality of baptism and the body and the blood. So it, it does have to do with our understanding of ourselves, but our understanding of ourselves in relation to God. Correct. Right? Is that How does God think Lu of me? For Luther, the conscience is always, as he said, in, in temptation, we can barely hold on to this passive righteousness, this righteousness of faith. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the Holy Spirit, as he lays out in the large catechism in the third article stuff, it's the Holy Spirit runs all the verbs mm -hmm. of salvation. And therefore, our comfort is in the language of giftedness, in the language of promise, in the language of God taking agency, and our receiving the activity of God, specifically in Jesus Christ, dead and raised for the forgiveness of sins. Whereas in the modern understanding of conscience, it's all about what's happening inside of me. You're choosing between um, what you tell yourself and what God has said about you. Correct. Yeah. Let your conscience, let your conscience be your guide versus where Dr. Luther would say, God's word will be your guide. Yeah. And not in an abstract sense, but rather God's word being Jesus and then the means of the spirit through which he gives you Jesus. Yeah, because you word, could easily, uh, we've talked about this in, in other shows, you could easily um, allow your conscience to be informed by um, your experience, for example. Correct. Right? Correct. So, you know. Uh, as we all do. So, so you might think of yourself as having a good conscience when you're healthy and well and prosperous. Uh, mm -hmm. But then what happens to that same conscience if that's the primary means of being, of it being informed Correct. when you get sick, <clears throat> when there's cancer, when you lose right, the house? Precisely. Yeah. It's like, now how does God feel about me? Or, right. You know, what is that relationship to God like now? You right. Know, and and that's one of the reasons why uh, God instructs us to give to Him 
our bad conscience, right? So if mm-hmm. we doubt him, if we doubt his word, if we're in, we're in fear and terror, don't keep it to ourselves, um, but give right. that to him too. Well, and this is what Luther refers to as the joyous exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That the joyous exchange is that Jesus gives us all that he is, righteousness, forgiveness of sins, wisdom, sanctification, all these things, these synonyms for Jesus. And then he takes all that we have. Our anxieties, fears, worries, pain, despair. Right. Yeah, troubled yeah. consciences. Or uh, was it Athanasius who said, he, he, what is it? We are given all that he is. Or we become all that he is and he becomes all that we are. It's the exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Joyce exchange just laid out differently. Um, but rather, no, that's the point. When you go to Lord's table, then very practically speaking, what do you take to the Lord's table with you? Your terrified conscience, your trouble, the, the troubled heart that you might, your disturbed heart or your disturbed mind over sin, death, and the world, mm-hmm. your mess of a life, your divorce, your recent diagnosis with leukemia, your kid getting an F in school, whatever it may be. All the things you think God holds against you. Right, are actually all the things he wants from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And therefore, when we confuse the modern understanding of conscience with the pre-modern understanding of conscience, we project back onto Dr. Luther something that he would actually refer to as original sin. Yeah. Yeah. So often what we refer to as Christian righteousness is actually just original sin. Oops. Yeah. But as he points out... This is what happens when we don't hold on to passive righteousness in the language of giftedness. We're hounded by fears, right? Constant fears. Right, exactly. Because we want to be like God. But as uh, Vinnie Paz, he is a rapper, uh, Jedi Mind Tricks, pointed out, knowledge and consciousness of like information, learning, isn't all that is cracked up to be all the time. Mm-mm. Because the more you learn, the more you know, the more conscious you are of the way things are, the more troubled and the more worried. It's like um, listening to a recent conversation. When you have a child, for example, when you have a child, all of a sudden you become terrified of the whole world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You become aware of all of the jagged edges, all of the pitfalls. Because when you're single, it's like I talk about, I used to rock climb. And then when my first son was born, I went rock climbing and I was, I was actually afraid for the first time rock climbing. I would, I would have a healthy fear of the dangers of rock climbing. I could fall and so forth and so on. So be careful. But once my son was born, that fear was if I die, my son will grow up without a father. Yeah. For me, it was also excessive speed driving. Correct. Thing. Right. You know, like, right. Exactly. Yeah. I need to actually protect my, you know, follow the law because it protects me. Right. You go to the car dealership and your first question isn't how fast does this go, but rather does this have side airbags? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. What's the gas mileage on this thing? What's the insurance? Yeah. There's on a big this? shift there. There's a big shift. There is a radical shift because, and I use the example of parenting because it's really the most stark experience that I've ever gone through where I was yanked out of myself, mm. violently yanked out of myself. When I saw my son, literally be born and I was right there and I cut the the umbilical cord and whatnot. It like something happened so radical to me that I could have spent my entire life trying to find that feeling, find that shift in consciousness, but I would have never found it. But there is also a, a, a way that our conscience relates to one another, right? To our neighbor. Correct. Right. Yeah. Not just to God, but to our neighbor, as we talked about in the last episode in regards to forgiveness in relation to parenting. Mm-hmm you still have to rule your house with law and yet the simul, mm. the overlap, the, the double sense of reality or the double sense of self then says we rule with the law 
but yet we recognize that forgiveness must rule over all. Right. So think of like, uh, there's a book called The Judgment at Nuremberg, right? And it talks about the chaplains yeah, yeah, at yeah. Nuremberg. Yeah. And you have, you know, Nazi war criminal uh, confessing their sins, being absolved or shriven mm -hmm. or whatever the <laughs> right. word you want to use, uh, and then going and getting hung for what he did. Well, there's, there, there was only one person at Nuremberg more hated than those Nazis, and that was the pastor who absolved their sins. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because the righteousness of the world, correctly, said, you need to die. There can be no forgiveness. Right. There can be no forgiveness for what you've done. Um, this is though, and since you brought it up, this is why, what is it, Hannah Arndt called the banality of evil. Hmm. That when you, meet, when you met them and you spoke to them, if you didn't know what they were or, or who they were, you would have said, these are very polite, very well put together men, intellectual, well-spoken, thoughtful, and yet evil. <laughs> like I was watching a show and uh, the FBI agent walked in and called and said the person was a Nazi. And they're like, no, I'm not. Well, you're a white supremacist. But no, I'm not. I'm just interested in, in uh, the prosperity of our nation, right? And, mm -hmm, so, right. and that's how deceiving the ideology Correct. is. Yeah, we right. want to apply these like terms of evil towards them. They don't see it that way. Correct. Because they believe they're righteous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and that's and they were the, actually before right. their neighbor, at least correct you know, in a in a legal way and a right in a social way. Well, and you and I have experienced this. I'm sure many listeners have experienced this when Christians confuse and mix active versus passive righteousness. We do so much evil to each other in the name of God, in the name of serving Christ faithfully. Mm -hmm. We will, as we have all experienced on social media at one time or another, I'm sure, or at least witnessed on social media, we will destroy each other publicly on social media in the name of righteousness mm -hmm. and believe that we are 100% right in doing so. Because that other person's a sinner, that person's not sanctified, that person goes to the wrong church or worships the wrong way or has the wrong pastor or doesn't behave the right way or talk the right way or whatever. And then that is, that gives an opportunity hmm. for the mob to attack. Yeah. yeah. Because this allows me to elevate myself by making you lesser than and prove I am more righteous than you. And to Paul's thesis here in his letter and then Luther's treatment of it, mm -hmm. uh, this is the central argument right that we're yeah <laughs> let's let's learn who we actually are let's not be Correct. naive here let's let god inform us and tell us this is your real situation and right this, and right. this is how little you actually can do about it <laughs> right which goes to the point then leading into the next paragraph luther says human nature is so pathetic and miserable that when our conscience panics with fear or death is near we can't see anything but our works our merit and the law. The law uncovers our sins, and in an instant, our memory recalls our old life of sin. Why do you keep bringing that up, Pastor? Right? The law uncovers our sins. I thought the law was there to help me, well, achieve righteousness. Hmm. Which, if you're a late medieval Roman Catholic or modern Protestant, that's actually what you understand the purpose of the law to be. Right, and that's why uh, St. Paul will make <laughs> pretty intense argument, what, in Galatians 4, right? Yeah, right, About absolutely. the woman, the two women and, and their children, and yeah. This is why when Lutherans fall into the ditch of Roman Catholicism or the ditch of Protestantism, they will attack Luther's lectures on Galatians and say, whatever, this is, it's not in our confessions and therefore it's not to be taken as equal to or it's lesser than the confessions. And the simple response is, have you actually read the book, not not just right. Luther's lectures, but did you read Galatians? Did you read it? Right. 
Like, it's not that hard to see the argument. <laughs> no, he lays it out. Paul's pretty clear in his argument. It, it he's clear. He's forceful. It's it, it's not subtle. Um, right. No, it's not 12 chapters. It's not 60 chapters. Mm-hmm. It's brief. It's right to the point. It's full force in your face. Maybe even more so than Romans. I mean, Romans does that too with the law at the beginning, right? At the beginning, right. But then he kind of spread. Yeah, he kind of It gets a little softer, on. especially when you get yeah. into like 15 and 12, 12 Yeah, and right, right. That's all this nice kind of pious righteousness before men. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the law uncovers our sins, and in an instant, our memory recalls our old life of sins. You and I both see this at the deathbed in particular. Yeah. There are some people who... Where they rehearse everything. Yes, they go through everything, and their family is going through everything, as if that's comforting. Hmm. It's like, you're still going to die. So, I'll listen. I listen to their confession, which mm-hmm. is a confession of sin, whether they recognize it or not. And then once they've, they're done, they've exhausted that, I then preach Christ mm-hmm. and the resurrection. Absolving. Yep. Because you're still going to die based on all those works. And yet based on Christ's works, I'm here to preach the resurrection to you. Your resurrection. You are a baptized child of God. This is why Dr. Nagel says at his funeral, and I take this on myself as well for my funeral, and I've already written this down for my wife. I want one thing written down. He's baptized. Everything else is chaff. Because nice. in the end... When you die, at the judgment day, everything that you've ever thought, said, or done will be washed away, except baptism. What, wait a minute. What about like faithful father, good citizen, served his country, and da 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 da? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. The law says nine. We call that a eulogy. Good words about the person. Right. Right. That's why you want to put that before the divine service begins, not in the middle of the divine service. Yeah, always let the uh, yeah proclamation of the resurrection be the final word. And that is, I, I say this often, that is, it, you can criticize the LSB all you want for whatever personal thing is, you know, I, again, I don't like the fact that some of the Psalms have been taken out for the sake of space. Sure, sure. Doesn't matter. The, the funeral rite in the LSB is awesome. Yeah. Because it's about baptism. Start and to finish. Yeah. Yeah. Just hammers it. And that, I think Even that's the, the prayers. grace of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That the, as the pastor, you can completely muff the ser- the whole service, and the congregation can make it all about the deceased. But that if you use that service, that rite of uh, the funeral rite, mm-hmm. you, your nose is rubbed in the gospel. Yeah, and the suggested propers as well. You know the readings yes. and hymns. Yes, yeah. So Luther continues. Then it is then when the sinner moans in great anguish of spirit and thinks to himself, "How I regret it! I've lived such a crazy life." That was a good story. It, was, it made a great story. If God would only have mercy on me and give me the chance to live a little longer, then I would change my life. Human reason can't stop from fixating on the act of righteousness or in the development of its own righteousness. New kinds of righteousness. Sanative justification, progressive sanctification. Can we just have, can we have a, just a, a dash of active righteousness added to Christ's righteousness. What do we call that now? Like social justice? Social justice warriors. Yeah. Yeah. Which Ugh. isn't inherently wrong, I suppose. That we No, caring about the disenfranchised and those who are oppressed, I would say, is biblical for sure, especially Old Testament. Well, that's what Luther called what? What did he call that? Uh, human t- social behavior, righteousness of yeah. social behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Care for the orphan and the widow. Care for the stranger at your door. Absolutely. A sojourner. Yeah. Just understand that is not the ultimate calling in life. That is not the ultimate purpose for which the church is established. It's not the gospel. 
But notice, in the absence of passive righteousness, in the absence of Christ and the forgiveness of sins, what happens? Well, human traditions are multiplied beyond all measure. Sin. I got a, I got a big book of them. Right. Yeah. Whole libraries dedicated to this. Go to a law library at a law <laughs> school and see how this works itself out. There's no end to justification hmm. of the self. Human reason can't stop from fixating on the act of righteousness or in the development of its own righteousness. Neither can it lift its gaze to look upon the passive righteousness or Christian righteousness, but seeks refuge in its own active righteousness. So deeply ingrained is this evil within us. Hmm. My, uh, my advisor, my thesis advisor, Stephen Paulson, you, he refers to this as being a belly button theologian. Yeah. Always looking at to, yourself. Yeah. To be literally curved in on yourself is to be a belly button theologian. Well, this is the problem You're, with righteousness. Um, even if it's done in faith, as soon as you point it out or look at it, the old, old Adam claims it, right? Absolutely. hundred mm-hmm. percent. And this is why Dr. Luther says that this righteousness is a hidden mystery. The world is not aware of because as you point out, as soon as we recognize this mystery, right? We pull we pull back the mask and find it find out it's the old you know it's old man Johnson who was in charge of the carnival. And if it wasn't for you pesky Christians and your passive righteousness, I would have gotten away with it. Hmm. That's the problem. Is as soon as we pull back the mask, what do we find? Well, as Doctor Luther points, deeply ingrained evil. So everything we call good, going to the Heidelberg disputation, sure. Everything we call good, God calls evil, and what we call evil, God calls a good work. <laughs> That's how deeply grained this way of, of being is within us. So like at Nuremberg, like you were saying, I mean, that those men could be forgiven before God. That was yes. called evil by the world. Yes, mm-hmm. precisely. On the other hand, Luther continues, Satan takes advantage of the weakness of our nature and certainly increases and exacerbates this worrisome brooding within us. It should not come as a shock to us that the poor conscience is then stressed out horrified and befuddled for it is impossible for the human mind by itself to conceive any comfort or to look only upon grace when it feels the horror of sin neither can it constantly reject all the arguments in favor of its own works so it just can't you know, stop looking at itself it can't you want to understand how this works go read the heart of darkness by joseph conrad mm-hmm. or go watch the movie apocalypse now or even Hearts of Darkness, where they where they go over the making of Apocalypse the making, Now. Hearts of Darkness is one of the best documentaries ever. It's so fascinating. Because this is really the purpose of Conrad's book and the adaption by Coppola uh, to the Vietnam narrative, which is what ends up happening, as Luther points out, is the deeper you go within yourself, the more and more it is revealed to you, not your innate goodness, Mm-mm. but rather the evil that lies under the surface. This, and by evil, I think this is the thing, right? We think of evil in terms of, oh, you're such a Hitler. Or evil in the sense of Pol Pot and the killing fields, the Khmer Rouge type of deals, or yeah. Mao, Stalin. But not that but banal evil. <laughs> that was the word we used. Right, the banality of evil. The banality of evil is, no, truly evil people. Go watch interviews with, with serial killers on death row. Mm-hmm. What you'll find is they're very normal. Yeah. As far as the way they speak, the way that they express themselves, the way they behave, very normal, very normal. You'd think to yourself, it's like when you go to the zoo 
and you stand on the other side of the glass from a tiger. Hmm. And you think, oh, look, he's cute. He's playing in the water with a big ball, and he's rolling around with the other tigers. And I wish I could just get in there with him. I'm sure he's just a big kitty. And then every once in a while on the news, right, yeah. man jumps into tiger cage and is mauled to death. Man jumps in polar bear cage, and the polar bears just beat him to death. You know, just right. What we often refer to as evil, we think of in terms of a horror movie, monstrous evil, Jason, Freddy Krueger, right. that kind of stuff. Versus what Luther's saying is, actually all of us, all of us, at heart, are evil. And this is evident in what we call, what, petty white sins, you know? Yes. Our, our little yes. sins, which yes. are evidence of a heart that is that dark. Right. It, you know, our petty sins are more like a leaky faucet. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that there's a, there's a deeper problem. It's just the pressure being released through this one crack. So, I mean, I've made the argument. I've never tested it out to see if it's true. But, like, you know, we're all one step away from being, you know, the serial killer or mm-hmm. or the uh, kleptomaniac or whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. the worst offender. As someone who has spent time in the back of police cars and as someone who has had a bench worn out for his arrest, um, you're always one decision, one person. And we just got, we learn about this in sobriety mm. all the time that – when you get sober, when you get clean and sober and you're working a program of recovery, you have to leave behind your social groups because I was just talking with a buddy that I trained with in Muay Thai last night. We actually both grew up in the same town and yeah, he's about 20 years younger than I am. So generationally divided. So you didn't cross, yeah, you didn't cross paths, but same culture came out of the same culture. He grew up experiencing the same things I did living there. Hmm. And so we have these conversations. And one of the things that I expressed to him, as he pointed out, is he's trying to get his life together, trying to get on the right track, develop good habits, healthy habits. And as he pointed out, every time I go back, Hmm. I say to myself, I'm not going to drink this time. And five minutes after I get out of the truck, I got a beer in my hand. And I said, well, that tells you something, doesn't it? He's like, yeah, I got to stop going home. I'm like, yes, but you can't just say that you've got to stop doing it. You've got to say to your family, I love you and I want you to come and visit me, but I can't go back there because it triggers me. You you, re- you have to recognize the weakness, right? That you actually have you, a weakness. Yeah, exactly. That sin crouches at the door and often the mask it wears is the beloved, the loved one, the family member that you so, trust. So sobriety isn't, isn't necessarily gaining the strength to resist, but rather gaining the insight to know. Correct, yeah. What's going that, on there? Yeah, you, the consciousness Mm-hmm. of not only the consequences of your addiction, but the consequences for others and how they contribute or detract from your addictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that you can say, I love you, but I just can't hang out with you. It's like yeah. when I first got sober, I didn't really, I didn't notice. I wasn't conscious of the fact that my social group, my best friends that I called, that I called, they're my best friends. Every time they went out, it was to a bar. Every mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And so if I would, if I said, hey, why don't you come over and we'll make you a dinner and we can hang out you know, on the lawn or, Hey, why don't we go to a restaurant or, Hey, why don't we go to a show or something else? Go to a park even, you know, everybody really wants to go listen to that band play over there. Or, you know, it's drink specials at this place or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I just, I'm not down with that. I can't be a part of that scene anymore, man. Because what does a sober person do in a bar? Uh, what, what do you, you know? I guess you could play pool if they got that or well, darts or something. As I learned, you go to a grocery store to get groceries. You learn, you go to a gas station to get gas. What do you go to a bar for to get drunk? I mean, and then whatever comes along with that, right? And exactly, exactly. (laughs) And for an alcoholic, what comes along with that is just a whole lot of bad decisions. Mm -hmm. As you pointed out, it's just, you you get a phone call. Hey, can you, can you meet us here at seven? 
Absolutely. And then you say to yourself, I'm only going to stay for 20 minutes and I'm going to check out because I don't want to be tempted. Too late. It's too late. As soon as you agree, as soon as you let sin come in the door, now you're not, you might not drink, you might not use, but you're surrounded by people who are, and you're not, your, your sobriety is by fingernails now. And whether yeah. you think, no, I'm strong, I'm good, I got 20 years under my belt, there's no way I could fall, that's exactly when you fall. When yeah. you think that you're too strong to fail. Well, this is what the, I mean, there's obviously a lot more going on than just the simple spiritual, or not simple, really, the mystery of the spiritual <laughs> reality. Right. But there is all the biomechanical and the habits and all the, you know, the way that our flesh has been trained, you know. The the grooves that, you know, it's been proven now by neuroscience that we can actually carve these these synoptic pathways in deep, our brain. Deep, from childhood, deep. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I, and again, I grew up around alcoholics and drug addicts, so... For me, that was normal. It was, you know, actually in the womb, these neural pathways were being carved yeah. before I was even born. So my natural operating system is not sober. Hmm. My natural operating system is not sober. And therefore, whereas other people can have a couple beers or experiment with this drug or that drug, whatever it may be. Embrace your symbol once in a while. Right. I can't. That's why I'm a Lutheran, ultimately, because right. Lutheran theology is really the only theology that allows me to go to the Lord's table and drink from the chalice on Sunday morning mm -hmm. as an alcoholic, yeah. as I've noted many times before. That's the scandal of Christianity. That's the scandal of the cross. Hmm. So, yeah, when he says evil, don't look at the serial killer on death row. Don't look at the great bloodshed shedding dictators of, of the past century. Just look in the mirror. Yeah, and evil here, Luther is attaching to the sense of merit based off yeah, of yeah, our, yeah. our active. Yeah, over yeah. the times when we say we did good, and trying right. to, and that's that's truly evil is to take that which doesn't merit. And us. as you noted about Nuremberg, evil people don't get up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to do ten evil things today by lunchtime. Yeah, evil not, people get up in the morning and say, I'm going to do some good today. Mm -hmm. Good for myself. I'm going to cannibalize another human being because I like it, or I'm going to do good for the the nation. Right? We're going to we're going to exterminate the Jews and the Gypsies and the Blacks and the homosexuals, whatever it may be. However, you justify it to yourself, as he points out, you justify this to your own mind. Yeah, it's when you go out with the express purpose of eating a human being, that's pretty far outside the lines of what we would consider lawful, you know, just behavior. And yet, to that person, when they're arrested. What? What? Yeah. Yeah, sure, I've got a quirk. <laughs> but, I mean, come on. Versus Ted Bundy, when he was caught, he was like, thank God, because I can't stop myself. That's hmm. what he said. Hmm. I wanted to be caught, he said. In fact, I, uh, listening to the FBI profiler at that lecture that I went to about, geez, 20 years ago now, that's what he said, is that most most serial killers, that when the FBI caught them, one of the first things they said is, thank God you caught me. So it's not that He's, they lack the knowledge of their sin. Right, so that they can't stop the impulse. Mm -hmm. Well, they think that they can, and they think that they can, right? Yeah. He said one serial killer they caught, when they caught him, he actually, his first words were, thank God you caught me. Mm -hmm. And you'd say, this man's a monster. How can you thank us for catching him? Because he's going to die. <laughs> he's going to death row, 100%, because in the state, this state, there's death penalty. Yeah. So how could he say that? Because like you pointed out, he recognizes what he does is way outside the boundary of the law. He understands he's not just. And part of the game is to is to see how far you can go and not get caught, right? And that way you're trying to get caught. But well, this is why serial killers will actually try and participate in the hunt, the manhunt. Hmm. They will actually call into the tip line. They will go into the police station and say, hey, I saw something. Because in their mind, 
They want to be a hero, and in their own mind, they're smarter than everybody else. And therefore, let's play a game. Hmm. Yeah, it's fast. That's why we're fascinated with serial killers because we identify with them a little bit, maybe because they're a mirror that this is our this is what happens to us when we are completely unrestrained, unhinged, yeah, unhinged from the law and society. This is what's possible. Like you said, one decision, mm-hmm. one choice, one relationship, you know, oh. you see the same thing in, in broken relationships, broken marriages, abusive relationships. How did it get to this? Did it start off this way? Yeah. And I, I, I remember um, counseling somebody who said, well, you know, I'm going to divorce my, my husband or wife. I can't remember. And then, then we're going to get married. This person mm-hmm. I've been having an affair with. And my thought was, mm, then you're going to divorce them. And then you're going to have another affair. I mean, it's serial. Right. How does this work? Right. Yeah. yeah serial monogamist. Mm-hmm. Serial cheaters. adulterers. Really? Serial, yeah. But yeah. Serial adulterers. Yeah. This is the problem then is it's so deeply ingrained in us, this evil that when the passive righteousness of Christ is presented to us, declared to us, our response is yes, but we can't even look at it. Can't even consider it. Right. He is one to whom we turned our face away. Mm-hmm. And that's what Satan takes advantage of. The brooding that we, we get locked in our own thoughts, right? What does Dr. Luther say when you're tempted to sin and the devil's on you? Seek out the company of your friends and go out and have a drink and sing some songs and have a few laughs. Get out of your own head. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Because what happens? You get locked in a cycle of thinking. Stinking mm-hmm. thinking, we call it an addiction. Or let's just go bowling. Right. Just do something, but get off the treadmill of brooding, ruminating. So, yeah, it should not come as a shock to us that a, the poor conscience is stressed out, horrified, and befuddled. It's impossible for the human mind by itself to conceive any comfort or look only upon grace when it feels the horror of sin. And then, of course, as he points out, he, it, it rejects all the arguments in favor of its own works. Yeah, it can't. This is way beyond human strength and ability, Luther says, as well as over and above what God's law can give. And this is key. He points this out in Schmalkald too, and mm-hmm. people hate this. I, there are lots of people who hate that little caveat that Luther adds to the first use of the law in Schmalkald, which he calls the failed use of the law. Mm. How dare you say that about God's word? Well, he says it here too. <laughs> He's consistent. It has its limits. This, the law, the civil use of the law, the first use we would call it, mm-hmm. it, and this is Luther's point, as we've noted over and over again, he says this is the bondage of the will. God commands, but yet the command gives us no ability to do what it commands. Mm-hmm. Whereas the old Adam thinks, well, God has commanded this, thus we must have the ability to do it. Why would he command the impossible? Answer, mm-hmm. so that you'll stop doing it and let him do it for you. <laughs> yeah. Because what is impossible for man is possible for God, according to Jesus. So this, this idea or this notion that somehow we can resist Satan, enjoy a good conscience, embrace the passive righteousness of faith, Luther says, <clears throat> wrong answer. That's the mistake of the papists. Yeah, that we have strength or ability to do such right, a thing. Right, that there's actually something in us that can, that can cooperate or collaborate with, with the passive righteousness of faith. This is way beyond human strength and ability. It's over and above what God's law can give. It is true. That with regards to all in this world, the law is of utmost excellence, but it cannot quiet down a mortified conscience. Yeah. This is why talking about a person's works at the deathbed does not give them comfort, but rather stirs up their conscience. In fact, it might actually revive them for a couple more days. Yeah, and there's also a sense that, um, oh, I don't know, even something virtuous like um, 
trying to uh, dissuade people from going into an abortion clinic, right? During the correct, like the petitioning or the standing out in front, um, mm-hmm. and and trying to counsel people towards you know bearing the child. Uh, yeah, you know, is that a, is that a good work? Is it virtuous? Is it is it's the law speaking right. out? You shall not murder, right. of course, for protecting life. But again, does mm-hmm. that does that actually salve the conscience? Right. Because versus, if you're going to be honest, have you ever done enough? <laughs> right. I was going to say versus, hey, let's go have a, can we have a conversation about this? Can we sit down and actually talk about this for over a cup of coffee or, or let me buy you lunch and let me hear your position. Let me know why you're going in there. Mm-hmm. Let me know why you believe this is all right. Well, of course. No, you should do that. Or to go one deeper, when someone comes to you and says, I'm pregnant and mom and dad said, it's okay for me to have an abortion. And I just want to talk to you about it before I go in and see what you think. I.e., will you please let me off the hook? because my conscience is still troubled. That's yeah, why I'm here talking right, to you. Right. And you, you meet that with, if you do this, I'll have to excommunicate you. I'll have no choice. Mm-hmm. Don't no, Don't do that. Instead, recognize that she's not grounded in her baptismal identity. She's not thinking outside of herself and her own present needs. Her parents are not pointing her to baptism, the community of faith. Um, again, God's unconditional love in Christ, but rather this, this finality of, well, you, you're not old enough to raise a baby. The The boyfriend's not going to be a father, blah, 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 blah. No, you've got to establish for her where the first commandment has broken loose mm. and therefore bind her to the communion of saints, bind her to the forgiveness of sins in Christ, bind her to the paths of righteousness that she enjoys on account of Christ shedding his blood and rising from the dead for her. Whatever you need to do, and as I've actually said, and again, I'm not virtue signaling, I'm just anecdoting here. Mm-hmm. As I've actually said, we'll take the baby. Yeah. I'll take the baby. I'll pay for all your medical expenses. I'll be there when it's born. Mm-hmm. I'll even let you visit the baby whenever you feel like. You can call the baby your own baby. We'll raise it for you until such time as you believe you're ready to raise it, if at all. But this is what I'm willing to do because I love you this much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is I believe, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, is to say I love you so much that I want to give you a gift that right now everybody, including yourself, is trying to take from you. Hmm. This is a gift so great that until this baby is born, you can't comprehend the the again, the the abundance of gift that God has given you. Even though, yeah, you did it through sin. Right, Even exactly. You, you, we we see the evil, we, and we draw yeah. our attention to the evil of you know extramarital right. you know uh, yeah. relations. Somebody you're not married to, whatever, and mm-hmm. uh, and and yet the child is not a gift, right, 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 and, and actually a gift for you. I mean, that's the thing. You think you're not ready, or you're you're not prepared for that, or whatever it is. And it may be all true in a civic kind of sense, right? Exactly. Uh, and but, this is the art of pastoral care. Mm. The art of pastoral care is recognizing in the moment the first commandment's broken loose in this person's life. And the way it's broken loose is in relation to the fourth commandment, the third commandment, the eighth commandment, whatever commandment, however faith in in your baptismal uh, identity is broken loose and and cut you off from that reality. Mm -hmm. As a pastor, then, what I uh, attempt to do, what I prayerfully, prayerfully attempt to do is to say, what's in the way? What's the flotsam and jetsam of the law and life and sin and Satan that's cut you off from this baptismal comfort and consolation? So that, all, like you said, all you're seeing is sin, unrepentance. You're seeing evil. You're seeing you're seeing 20 years down the road and how this is going to ruin your life, whether it's alcohol, unwanted pregnancy, bad relation, whatever it is. 
how can I as your pastor then shepherd you? Mm-hmm. Literally shepherd you back to the fold <laughs> and, and spare you from the wolves who are at the door. Does that mean I have to then go out and kill the wolves? Maybe. No. Does that mean I have to protect you from the wolves? Maybe. Does that mean I have to shepherd you back? Maybe. With goodness and mercy, which pursue you all the days of your life, Psalm 23. Yeah. Nonetheless, I am primarily a giver of the gifts, the gospel, and the forgiveness of sins. Words, water, bread, and wine. And not primarily a moral teacher. There's time for moral teachings, 100%. Do I do it? 100% of the time. Good. You can't rule your house with the gospel. <laughs> right. But the one but, who comes to you and right. who confesses has exactly the, the, the moral this, teaching has been heard right. and received. Recognize that the spirit is at work. Yeah. Recognize that as Luther points out, then her conscience is troubled, which is why she's talking to you. Because mm-hmm. again, if her conscience wasn't troubled, if the spirit wasn't at work, she would have gone to the abortion clinic, not to the church. And she would have never told you she had an abortion. Mm. And as I've, in the past 20 years, heard more than a couple times, uh, women at the middle of their life or later in life will confess to me when I was 16, 17, 18, 20, 22, whatever, had an abortion. And I've carried this with me my entire life. Yeah, as you will. As you will, exactly. And that's the, that's the thorn hmm. that, that Satan is constantly pushing deeper into the flesh. And so every time they hear the forgiveness of sins pronounced to them, they cringe. They grit their teeth. They know and, and are afraid to admit, if I ever let this out, it's over. Yeah. Everything that I've built, everything that I have will be taken from me. And then ultimately, because they believe they're damned. And you often then see, too, uh, some overcompensation, we might say. Right. Yeah, absolutely. They're yeah. the best volunteers. Right. Whatever it might look like, you know, some way to compensate for, for what they did. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, oh, that's again to look to our own works, but mm-hmm. and try to find righteousness there. To, right. And uh, it just doesn't work. Right. That's why they end up confessing to you because they, God finally reveals that to them. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, I tell people this whenever it comes up and it often shocks them that I, I say the reason that I am, so dog into my proclamation of Christ and the gifts is because I don't believe that I'm saved a lot of time. Hmm? Most of the time, yeah, right. I just don't one based on my life <laughs> and two based on, I know myself better than anybody. I've got to look myself in the mirror every day. And third, I can preach the forgiveness of sins to others. And yet when it comes to me, hmm? I don't have a preacher. And therefore, if you were to ask me most days, my gut, reaction, my, my truly honest response would be, do I believe that I'm forgiven? Do I believe I'll be in the resurrection? Do I believe that I'll enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb without end? No. Mm. And that's my torture, is that I, I'm chosen to be a preacher of the word, and yet I don't believe the very words I preach. Mm. I struggle with sin and unbelief, which again is why I cling so tenaciously to the simul, <laughs> sake yeah. of full disclosure. Yeah. Well, Because and- <laughs> what are you left with if you don't have the simul? what we've been talking about this is the reality of not just pastoral vocation but you know i think uh, parental as well as we talked about in this episode and the last one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's where that's what satan goes after that's where temptation right. that's where temptation lies at the door because right. you undermine those orders and you know the way that god has placed things into order then you you unravel the whole thing right mm-hmm. well on the one hand if you say well i i've never doubted then you're not paying close enough attention to yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's true hypocrisy right there. Search your heart. Search your heart. And second of all, this is my opinion. Take it for what it's worth. I think if more pastors were open and upfront about their own struggle, 
to believe, their own struggle with confusion, doubt, their own struggle with temptation and the attacks of the devil, it actually might open up the conversation for other people in your congregation to come forward and say, I struggle with this too. Yeah, thank you for saying and, that. And and maybe the good Lord actually sends you a preacher. Mm. <laughs> or at the very least, someone who could say, Pastor, Jesus died for that too. Yeah, that's incredible. So this is way beyond human strength and ability, <laughs> as well as over and above God's law, what God's law can give. It is true that with regards to all in this world, the law is of utmost excellent. I agree completely. Mm-hmm. But it cannot quiet down a mortified conscience. Mortified. Mortified from mortis, meaning dead. Dead. <laughs> Rather, it increases its crushing sorrow, dragging it to desperation. Quote, that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Romans 7. There you Mm -hmm. go. This is the thing. You might outwardly behave, as you pointed out. You're very active in your church and community. You're a good neighbor. You're a good parent, a good co-worker. People love being around you. You're encouraging. You're kind. And yet, your conscience is mortified. It's dead. And that's why you're doing all these things. It's almost like a way of distracting yourself from what you truly believe is true. Isn't there something about like lipstick on a pig? Right. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. We're going to cut off the first part of the episode right there. And we'll be back uh, just in a few short days. And you can hear part two. Peace. Peace.